we know, and if he were here, he would be the first to say, there's unfinished business. And I'm here to say that Hillary Clinton is going to complete and continue the unfinished business of building an economy that works for everyone.
unfinished business. And the most important thing for me is to get a window into somebody's soul to see how they're going to deal with the unfinished, unfinished business of building an economy that works for everyone. And you know, one way to tell how to do this is to make sure you take a look at what they were doing before the spotlight was shined on them. Hillary Clinton has been a progressive her entire life. She understands that a progressive means to make progress, to get things done. She has the strength to get things done, and she has the steely resolve to persist. And, and let me give you a few examples. You know, I had the privilege of going to law school at Harvard University, and Secretary Clinton graduated from Yale. She could have gone anywhere. Most of our colleagues, when they graduate, they go out and make the big money on Wall Street. That's not what she did. Instead, what she did is she went out, was working with children, was working in the legal aid setting. And you know, we were having a conversation a few weeks back, and I was talking about my frustration with some of the limitations of our labor laws. And in particular, I was talking about the frustrations that we have with our laws protecting farm workers. And, and she listened dutifully. And at the end of it, she explained to me, well, Tom, when I was out organizing and working for farm workers decades ago, and I was sitting there thinking, I didn't know that. That's a window into her moral compass. I was in local government in Maryland, and I had the privilege of enforcing and implementing the Individuals with Disabilities and Employment Act, one of the most important pieces of, of, of legislation guaranteeing the right of children with disabilities to get access to quality education. And what I did not know until I got a window into her past was that after she graduated from law school when she was working with the Children's Defense Fund, what did she do? They went door knocking, wondering and trying to learn why was it that there were roughly two million people, two million children in this country who weren't getting access to equal quality education. She understands that education is the key to opportunity. She could have made a lot of money, but you know what? The report that they developed was the report that led to the passage of the Americans, the Individuals with Disability and Education Act. And you know, I used to teach at the law clinics at the University of Maryland Law School. That's where we teach people how to be lawyers by putting them in settings where they're representing low-income people. And let me tell you, I can attest, you don't make a lot of money doing that. But the non-monetary rewards are priceless. And it was remarkable when I learned that Secretary Clinton taught at the University of Arkansas Legal Clinic, working with low-income students who needed a hand. That's the window into her soul that gives me such confidence that she will be a remarkable president who puts your interests first the interest of working families, the interest of people who are struggling to make ends meet. And you know, the most important thing I think that I have learned about Secretary Clinton is she understands what it means to be a progressive Democrat. Because a progressive Democrat is passionate, but an effective progressive Democrat understands what one of my former bosses, Ted Kennedy, taught me 20 years ago. And that is, bless you, bless all of you, <laughs> that idealism and pragmatism are not mutually exclusive. That principled compromise is not a four-letter word. And that's why in 
next day, and they fought for more. That's what a pragmatic progressive like Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, that's what they do. And that's how you make progress. And you know what? And that sort of pragmatic progressivism is what brought us the children's health insurance program when she was first lady. Now, I'm confident that if she were queen for a day, she would have created a law that would have been far more expansive and covered more people. But she understood that there were children of working families who didn't have access to health insurance. And that law has helped literally millions of people. That's what a progressive is. They make progress. They make progress on behalf of working people. And that's exactly what Hillary Clinton has done her entire life. And that's why I'm so excited to be supporting her. And I will tell you, you know, I've had a front row seat here for six years, the privilege of a lifetime working with President Obama. And I'll tell you, one of the lessons of leadership that I have learned is that good leaders are good listeners. And you know, I have a lot of friends at the State Department. And I've had the privilege of doing a fair amount of international travel. And I asked my friends when we were together informally, you know, tell me about your experiences. You know, tell me about the various secretaries you've worked under. Who do you like the best? And you know, I, I hear a number of different names. There's, there's been a long history of remarkable secretaries of state. And I heard a lot of folks talk about uh, uh, Colin Powell, for instance. But I'll tell you, when I got to Secretary Clinton, you should see the reverence that would come before them. And what they would say were words like, good listener, tireless, takes my advice. And, and, and someone else who said to me, you know, I remember she treated the person who was the contractor who cleaned our building with the same level of respect as the head of state who was visiting the Department of State. That gives you a window into who she is. We've got a lot of work to do, and there's a lot at stake. I know you hear every four years that this is the most important election of your lifetime. And I'll tell you, for me, having had this front row seat, this is the most important election because everything we're trying to do on behalf of working families, we're trying to raise the minimum wage, we're trying to pass an overtime regulation, so if you work 60 hours, you get paid for 60 hours, not get paid for 40 hours. We're trying to make sure that people saving for retirement actually get access to good advice. We're trying to make sure that workplaces are safe. We're trying to make sure that our environment is safe. And you know what? The other side wants to undo all of that. The stakes are indeed high. And that is why we need Hillary Clinton. And I'll tell you, I mentioned, or I may have mentioned, that I'm also the father of three children, including two teenage daughters. And I'll tell you one more thing about progressives. We like to make history. You all made history here in 2008 when you helped elect Barack Obama. And I was talking to my daughters, and I always teach them, you know what? You can do any job you put your mind to, any job. Now, my middle kid is a little bit of a, you know, contrarian at times, said, any job? And I said, yes, any job. Well, Dad, there have been 44 presidents. How 
by saying, you know what? In 2008, we made history. In 2016, we're going to do it again.
ISIS. Not that they worked for the network of terrorists, not that they were taking direction, but that they may very well uh, have been influenced by, radicalized by, and pursued this terrible mass murder uh, because of that. We'll learn more as the days go forward. But it's very important uh, that we support law enforcement from local law enforcement up to federal law enforcement, that we stand behind those who are trying to uh, both solve crimes like this, but also prevent them. Uh, and it is incumbent upon all of us to uh, understand that this is gonna be a long struggle. I gave a speech about what we needed to do to defeat ISIS about 10 days ago, uh, laying out what I would do as president. Feel very strongly they have to be defeated, and that means taking them on in the air, taking them on on the ground, and taking them on in cyberspace. In the air, the United States can lead an air coalition, and we're getting more help. We just got help from, you know, indeed the French, the British, and the Germans, who are all going to be contributing. Uh, on the ground, it's not for United States troops to be sent over there. That is something I oppose. Others, however, uh, who are willing and can be enabled and equipped uh, to take the fight uh, to ISIS and try to recover territory. And then we've got a new, a new battlefield, and that's online. Because if it is the case that this latest incident um, in some way was connected to the propaganda that ISIS is constantly uh, churning out, adds to our understanding of how they use the internet to communicate, uh, even uh, exchange messages, as well as recruit, and sometimes direct uh, actions to be taken. Uh, and so we have to be willing and able to meet them and defeat them there as well. Now, I personally believe that we have to do more
don't want guns falling into the hands of mentally ill people, of stalkers, domestic abusers, or terrorists. So we've got to come together in our country to try to be smart about this, and we can certainly do it in a way that is consistent with the Constitution. So I'm going to continue to advocate for smart, sensible gun safety measures. And I will continue to advocate to prevent people out of no part of this from being able to buy a weapon. So, we have a lot to talk about today. I'm just at Sioux City talking about the infrastructure plan that I have uh, rolled out. I was really pleased that the Congress finally passed the Highway Transportation Bill so that we can begin to repair and rebuild and build and you know, take care of roads and bridges and tunnels and other parts of our infrastructure. But it's really uh, just a down payment, and we've got to do more. Uh, we are facing a lot of serious bottlenecks. You know, it takes longer for a freight train to maneuver around the outdated rail system in Chicago than it took for them to actually travel from LA to Chicago. That's bad for farmers, that's bad for manufacturers and shippers. It costs money, time is money. We don't have a single airport ranked in the top 25 in the world anymore. I mean, we invented the airplane and our airports are nowhere near as modern as airports elsewhere in the world. Tom was telling me that as the Secretary of Labor, he was out on the West Coast looking at our ports, particularly at Beth Long Beach, right? One of our biggest ports. That's where a lot of the stuff that gets imported into America goes through. We are so far behind the way that other countries are importing and exporting. It costs us jobs cost businesses profits. It undermines our economy. So when I talk about building our infrastructure, investing in it, I'm not just talking about really good jobs for construction workers and others, although there will be a lot of them, more contracts for businesses of all kinds. I'm talking about making sure the economy works better. And I just want to add on to something Tom said, because I, I believe this, and the facts actually now, I'm one of those people running for president who actually wants you to look at the facts. <laughs> I, uh, I think it's important to do that. And the fact is, our economy does better when we have a Democrat in the White House. That is the fact. And that goes back a long way, but just take the last 35 years. We've had five presidents, three Republicans, and two Democrats. I know both of the Democrats. And I, uh, I know they each inherited economic problems from their Republican predecessors. With my husband, it was a recession. The fact that the debt of our country had been quadrupled in the prior 12 years. And I remember after that 92 election, Bill saying to me, it is so much worse than they told us. And then he got to work. Yes, eight years later, we had 23 million new jobs. Incomes went up for everybody. Top, middle, working folks.
folks, poor folks, in fact, more people were lifted out of poverty into employment than any time in recent history. And we ended up with a balanced budget and a surplus. Now, I joined the Senate from New York in January of 2001, and, and I was hopeful. I thought, you know, we are really on the right track. No matter what issue you care about, we could make the investments in medical research and higher education and the Social Security Trust Fund, whatever it is you care about, plus pay down our debt over time. But back came the Republicans with their failed economic policies, cut taxes on the wealthy, get out of the way of corporations, and in the case of that administration, take your eye off the financial markets and off the mortgage markets, and we know what happened the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Now, shortly after the 08 election, President-elect Obama called and asked me to come see him in Chicago. I didn't know why at the time. Turned out he wanted me to be Secretary of State, but before we got to that, we were just sitting talking, he and I, and he looks at me again and he says, it is so much worse than they told us. <laughs> I said, I've heard that before, Mr. President-elect. And in fact, it was. This could have been a great depression, something we haven't seen since, you know, grandparents, great-grandparents' time. We were losing 800,000 jobs a month. Nine million Americans lost their jobs. Five million homes were lost. $13 trillion in family wealth disappeared. It was a very
my dad graduated in the depths of the Depression in 1935, he couldn't find a job anywhere. And somebody told him that somebody had said there might be a job in Chicago. So we hopped a freight train. I don't advise this today. In those days, there were a lot of folks doing it. Hopped a freight train, went to Chicago, got that job, became a salesman. Then he went into the Navy during World War II, came out and started a small business. It was really small. You know, it was just him, a day laborer from time to time, my mother, my brothers, and me. But it gave us a good middle-class life. My mother had a very different experience. She was abandoned and rejected by her parents, sent to live with grandparents who didn't want her either. So by the age of 14, she was working as a housemaid in somebody else's home to support herself. And I didn't know this when I was just a little girl, but as I got older and I realized how difficult her life had been, I remember asking her, how did you survive that? She said, you know, along the way, people showed me kindness. Like the first grade teacher saw she didn't have anything to eat and began bringing extra food every single day. Or even the woman whose house she was working in, she said, look, you want to go to high school, which my mother desperately wanted to do. You get up early, get your chores done, you can go, but then you got to come back after and finish your chores. And that may sound harsh in our ears today, for a 14-year-old, for my mother, it was like a gift. That's exactly what she did all four years. And she never stopped believing in the possibility of a better future. And much of that because of this extraordinary promise of America. So today, you know, I've got a grandchild who is just amazing. <laughs> and, you know, Bill and I are going to do everything we can to help her and certainly to support her parents in raising her so that she can pursue her dreams, whatever they might be. But you know what? I don't think that's enough. I don't think it's enough that we're doing that best for our grandchild. Because what kind of country will she become an adult in? And what kind of world is out there waiting for her? We've got to give those opportunities to every person, particularly every child in this country. You shouldn't have to be the granddaughter of a former president to believe your dreams can come true in America. You should be able to be the granddaughter of a factory worker or the grandson of a truck driver. And we all need to be moving in the same direction again, building that better future for our country and for each other. As your president, I will get up every day and do whatever I can to make sure every child in this nation has the same chance to live up to his or her God-given potential. That will be my mission. That's why I need your help. And I look forward to your questions. Thank you. so much what the One Campaign has done. It is a great organization, and many of you know about it. Um, I've worked closely with uh, 
the campaign, and of course with Bono, who's a dear friend of ours. And your emphasis on extreme poverty and fighting disease is so critical. Now, as a senator, as a first lady, as a secretary of state, uh, I certainly advocated for and did what I could to try to make sure we were dealing with extreme poverty and disease, both because the United States is uh, such a generous country, because whatever our government gives, individuals, organizations like one, religious organizations give so much more. People in this country are generous. But it's also important that we do what we can to alleviate extreme poverty and disease because we are all interconnected in the world today. Everything that happens now somewhere else has the potential to affect us. Diseases that used to be confined to places far away we saw that last year with Ebola, can end up on our shores. So we have to continue to try to lead the world in preventing disease and coming up with economic opportunities so that more people can have more chances to educate their kids, to be part of a more stable society, and very selfishly to be customers of the United States, our businesses, the things we sell. So this is in our interests as well as important uh, from just a, a perspective of humanity. There's one thing I will tell you is we need to do everything we can uh, to combat diseases because what's happening with climate change is diseases are moving north. Because a lot of those diseases that used to be confined to warmer climates are finding it possible to exist Affect people in further northern reaches. So I just want everybody to understand, when we talk about combating disease, it's not just something we do over there, it's something we do to protect ourselves here. And I'm gonna do everything I can as president to continue the work that I did as Secretary of State. When I started as Secretary of State, for example, the United States was providing drugs to treat 1.4 million um, HIV AIDS patients. By the time I left without spending one more penny of taxpayer money, I had tripled the number of people under treatment because we worked to get the cost of the drugs down. So when I left, it was 5.1 million people we were treating. So we've gotta be smart about how we do this and we have to find partners in the private sector, the philanthropic and faith communities and private sector, but I will do what I can to continue uh, America's role in leading the world in fighting these uh, kinds of problems. Thank you. Now, yes, this lady right there, I promise. How many people have a personal connection to Alzheimer's? Wow. 
Well, I can tell you that if I ask this question, unless we move quickly in 10 years, practically every hand will go up. Because as you are right to say, this is a disease that is becoming more and more common, in part because more people are living longer. Uh, but also, uh, we are able to keep people uh, going longer. And many families are sacrificing a great deal to care for their loved ones. And spending a lot of their resources, retirement funds and other savings, uh, to be in a position to keep their loved one at home, parent, spouse, anyone who they're deeply about. We are approaching, in my campaign, Alzheimer's in two different directions. One, as you rightly said, I rolled out a plan to provide a $6,000 tax credit to help families take care of somebody suffering from Alzheimer's. And I did that for a couple of reasons. One, because I know people, and I know how hard it is. But also because helping a family to help keep somebody at home is the right thing to do, and it also saves us money in the long run. Because if you move somebody into an institution, it's a lot more expensive. So if somebody can still stay at home and be taken care of, and Lots of times that can't go on, but for whatever period of time it does, I think the family should not be impoverished because they're trying to care for their loved ones. So I'm focusing on the caregiving crisis side of this. And then in a few weeks, we'll be rolling out my overall comprehensive Alzheimer's uh, uh, plan, and it includes a much greater commitment of research and I'm doing that both because experts I've consulted have said, you know, we are learning a lot, but we need to accelerate what we're learning, and we need to translate that into treatment and intervention. So we try to actually intervene into the disease at the earliest possible time, and hopefully either stabilize somebody or slow down the progression. Now, I think if we make this big investment, we will find that within a decade, we're going to see some real progress. One of the sad things that happened when the Congress you know, insisted on what was called the sequester, some of you might remember that word. They just cut funds across the board. It didn't matter whether something was working or not working. Everything was cut. And a lot of research was cut. And one of the areas most affected was Alzheimer's research because we were just ramping up to really figure out how to deal with this uh, condition. So I am making this a very high priority. And I appreciate the Alzheimer's Association and activists like you because you're helping to keep it uh, in the public eye. Thank you very much. Let's see. There's a hand right there. Yes, yes. Here comes the microphone. Hi, I just want to thank you, first of all, for being here. Um, I know I personally am tired of being part of the 51% of the population that is considered to be a second-class citizen, and I'm going to be a first-class citizen now. <laughs> Thank you. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and I also want to tell you that I'm from Buffalo, New York, originally. My grandfather was a truck driver for 42 years and helped establish the Teamsters uh, Union. So, uh, my, one of my biggest concerns today is about my daughter, who has taken on a great deal of debt in order to have a college education. Thank you.
Absolutely. Um, how many people here have or ever have had student debt? Okay. Okay. A lot of hands. A lot of hands going up over there. Yeah, my hand's up too because I had it. I had student debt. You know, we have got to make college affordable again. And here's my plan. Number one, I think community college should be free. And
I was paying my law school loan back at 10% of that cost. That was affordable. You know, it wasn't a lot of money, but I could afford that. I want as many students as I can to go into income contingency repayment plans. And if your daughter can get into one of those, she should, because that may well help. So we're going to revamp it. And the other thing I want to say, and uh, I was talking to some of the folks here at the college, I want students to be able to use Pell Grants year-round, and I want them to be able to use Pell Grants for living expenses as well. Because too many have to drop out because they have some kind of financial crisis. I started a program in Arkansas, along with some other folks, called the Arkansas Single Parent Scholarship Fund. Because I was teaching at the University of Arkansas in their law school, and I met so many young single parents, mostly single moms, who were really trying to better themselves, get an education, and then something would go wrong. Their baby would get sick. Their car would break down. And then they couldn't get to class. And they couldn't afford a babysitter. And all of a sudden, all that hard work began to just, you know, disappear. So we started this fund so that if you had living expenses that you were having trouble meeting, we would help you do that. It's now provided emergency funds to like, I don't remember, 32, 35,000 people who have been able to go on and finish their education. So there's a lot we can do together to help more young people afford to go to college, afford to stay in college and graduate and then pay whatever they had to borrow off in a reasonable way over time. So go to my website, it's a new college compact, give you more information. Yes, back there, gentlemen, right there. Is there anything that uh, the government is doing? I've always taken care of the health costs in our family as far as all the paperwork. From the time I used to make out a claim form and have my prescriptions, and, and now it's like I mean, like for Lansing's prescriptions, I looked at all. There's the exact same bill. So one company says it's, it's this much money, and the next company says it's this much. And if you don't have it, then the pharmacy says it's only this much. And then the cost has went up 50% of health insurance. The Obama plan is helping. I believe in helping the insurance because we've always went broke being uninsured with my past family's history and everything. Is there any type of reform that is out there or do you have any plans of helping the cost? Yes, I do. Um, I'm going to defend the Affordable Care Act because, as you rightly say, it's helped 18 million people get insurance, and it's helped a lot of people who never had any chance to be insured and get their medical uh, problems taken care of. So I'm going to defend it. But we have to improve it. And one of the areas we have to improve it in is that we've got to get the out-of-pocket costs down, and we've got to get prescription drug costs down. Prescription drug costs went up 12% last year. And 
There are a lot of reasons for this, but I'll mention some that I'm going to go after to try to get these costs down. And you rightly point out, depending upon who is bargaining to buy the pill, it comes at a different price, right? And so if you have a really good private plan that you're in and it covers thousands of people, they have a lot of market power, so they can drive a harder bargain. If you're in a small business, you're self-employed, you have a single policy on the state or federal exchange under the Affordable Care Act, you're not going to have as much market power. If you're a pharmacy, if you're a chain pharmacy, you're part of a big buying uh, market. But if you're a small family-owned pharmacy or independent pharmacy, you may not be. So it's just crazy. It's so many different costs for the very same Right? Now, why are American drug costs so high? Well, here are some of the reasons. You know, we as taxpayers, we support the National Institutes of Health, and I am glad we do. They are the best health to devise new drugs and new treatments. Then we as taxpayers support the Food and Drug Administration that tests these drugs to determine whether they're safe enough go into the marketplace. So we already have skin in the game. We've already put indirectly some dollars into helping drug companies figure out whether something will be uh, sellable. And then we pay the highest prices in the world because Medicare is forbidden by law from negotiating for lower prices with drug companies. Every other that has a big plan like Medicare or the national health plans, they negotiate. So up where Tom is from and where you are from, Buffalo, there's always buses going over to Canada where people can buy the same drugs for half the price. And if you live in Europe or you live in Australia, just about in any advanced economy, those economies are negotiating for lower prices with our drug companies. So we end up paying the highest price. Now, when I say I'm going to get the drug costs down and I'm going to work really hard to get Medicare to have the authority to be able to negotiate for lower prices, the drug companies always say that I'm going to interfere with research. That is absolutely not true. Right now, drug companies spend more money on advertising drugs to you than on research. So, from my
all sign up to caucus for me on February 1st. How many of you have ever caucused before? Oh, wow, that's great. Wow. Well, I hope those of you who have will decide to help out, be a volunteer. If you're really gung-ho and experienced in being a caucus goer, maybe you want to be a precinct captain. Yeah. yeah we, we'll give you something to put on your shoulders, you know, like epaulets or whatever. Please sign up to caucus and let's go win the caucus and then win the election.